And hello, Lighthouse. Good to see you once again. Yes, I'm back from vacation. We're going back to Second Peter, the third chapter. We've been going through the book of Second uh, Peter for quite a few weeks now. And the whole idea is, again, uh, the challenge that Peter, as he nears the end of his life, is challenging the church to beware of false teachers. So often uh, there's a sense of passion within Peter to really want to guard the people of God and to keep them from going astray because, uh, let me tell you, there's a lot of false teaching going on today. The first chapter of Second Peter portrays the nature of the Christian life with its challenge to continuing to grow and to, in terms of maturity and to, to build on the solid revelation of, of God's Word. Our spiritual growth and maturity is our best safeguard against the moral and doctrinal perversions that will confront us in a dark and dangerous days that we live in. Now, chapter 2, as we discussed a few weeks back, was an attack against the depraved false teachers who will seek to mislead God's people. Second Peter 3 deals with the promise of the second coming of Christ, but there's a sense of denial where they say, where is the promise of his coming? And by challenging the uh, people of their day, they Caught, caught, they were trying to discredit the Word of God in one sense and saying God's Word really isn't true and even though he talks about he's going to come again uh, guess what it's not going to happen. Martin Luther the church reformed back in 1483 to 1545 was looking for Christ's return and it stimulated him to write these words. The darkness grows thicker around us and godly servants of the Most High become rarer and more rare Impiety and licentiousness are rampant throughout the world, and we live like pigs, like wild beasts devoid of all reason. But a voice will be soon be heard thundering forth, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. God will not be able to bear this wicked world much longer, but will come with that dreadful day and chastise the scorners of his word. I thought, wow, that was, that was written in the 16th century. Amazing that Martin Luther felt that the Lord's return was near even at that point as he looked at the world in that day. And I think as you and I look at the world in our day, we think to ourselves, you know, can it get any worse? And uh, there's the sense of uh, challenge to the Word of God, the challenge to the Church of God and to the people of God in our society is unparalleled, it would seem. And so in Second Peter chapter 3, we're going to pick it up at verse 1. We're going to talk about what God is doing through Peter to challenge the believers that day that the fact that Jesus Christ is coming soon. But before we go there, let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing on the Word of God today. Father, I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, and Lord, that there is true power within the written Word of God. So Lord, as we look at your Word, I pray that through the Spirit of God that you would guide us into your truth and bless us, we pray, for we do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We pick it up in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. And both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. 
and by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so when he talks about this being the second letter that he's writing, he's that want to stir up in their minds by way of remembrance the teachings that uh, the apostles had brought to him, to them. And so Peter's discussing, turning now from discussing the depravity of the false teachers to really encouraging the faithful. He's wooing his readers from their friendship with false teachers to a deeper love for God and his gospel. It's the second letter that he's writing to the church. He was reading, uh, writing to the same group of readers as he did in 1 Peter. And he refers to his readers in this chapter four times as my beloved. And so he wasn't teaching new truth at this point. He was rather reminding them of those truths that would change their lives. I think we all need reminders in our lives about truth because we have a tendency to forget. Repetition is one of the key principles in learning and assimilating truth into our lives. See, Peter is still concerned about the issue of right belief leading to right behavior. The urgency comes from Peter's concerns at the lack of concern of the false teachers had in relation to basic doctrines of the Word of God. The focus here is on the promise of God in chapter 3. Jesus Christ is coming soon. But he says in verse uh, 3, he said, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. See, Peter, even as he writes this book, is assuming that he's writing in the last days. The existence of scoffers in that day who are mocking the word of God and the truth of God's words and the promises of God prove him right. The term last days, as we see in Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, is the period between the first and second comings of Christ. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said this in Acts 2, 16 and 17. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. The last days are today. The church age, we can call it the gospel age, it's marked by the presence of those who scoff at the word of God and not only scoff at it, but the promises of God as well. The characteristic aspect of the age in which we live in is a wanton disregard for the word of God. We should not be taken in by high-sounding criticisms and doubts regarding God's word. For they are only really, these teachers are following their own lusts and desires. And we see it happening more and more as people mock and put down the word of God. It's nothing new, my friend, but don't give them any credence. They tend to, these false teachers tend to justify their desires by raising questions about theology or truth which would condemn them. So if there's something in the Bible that I really don't like, something in the Bible I have a struggle with, then I'm going to twist its meaning, I'm going to do away with it, so that I can live my life the way I want, regardless of what God's Word teaches. And that's what these false teachers were doing. So sin is in the driver's seat, and these false teachers were following these thoughts and ideas that they conjured up about how they believe the Bible taught these false truths, and people, unfortunately, were following it. And that's, that's, that's the sad part, because the people in that day 
or following false teachers because they were nice guys. And, so, and you need to understand this very clearly, my friend. Sometimes we think that false teachers, people that mislead people, are really uh, wicked, are really uh, hard to be with, but that's far from the truth. The thing is, a lot of false teachers are very nice people. They come across as being very loving, very kind, very compassionate, and sometimes people are misled by that because they think, well, if this person is so nice, so kind, so caring, how can he be wrong? And the truth is, uh, they can be wrong. They really can be wrong. So the question is, how are these teachers really getting away with this? In verse 4, we read in our Bibles, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers sleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They are questioning the second coming of Christ. Uh, nothing new here. People all along have questioned the second coming of Christ. Christians have struggled with this teaching for a long, long time. And Paul addressed this issue in Thessalonica as well as in Corinth. Jeremiah also faced this challenge as well. In Jeremiah 17, 15, Jeremiah said, Behold, they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. In other words, God doesn't care. He's not coming. We can live the way we want. He's not a person that we can really follow. And uh, even though he says he's coming back, uh, let's just forget about it and live the way we want to live according to our own ideas and concepts of how we should live. See, the return of Christ has caused many challenges for many believers. Peter here is addressing many people who challenge the second coming of Christ. To be straightforward, it's a, it's a good question on the surface. However, underneath it, it shows biblical illiteracy when people who profess to know the Bible question the second coming of Christ. What they're actually seeing is that nothing has changed since the world began. The world just keeps on going like normal. There's been no intervention of God in this world. And therein, my friend, they are wrong. They would say that our world is closed to God's intervention. So Peter shows three examples at this point to show that God has stepped in to create the world a second time to flood it, and nothing stops him from coming a third time. We see in verse 8, 5, pardon me, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The reasoning of these people are as flawed. They fail to see that God relates to the world through his word. Let me repeat that. God relates to this world through the word, his word. Do we fail sometimes to see that God relates to this world through his word? Uh, the three examples he gives from Scripture show this. It's not a line of argumentation for Peter at this point. Now, here's a thought. You, you, uh, take home. You can write this down in your notes. Remember this. False teachers always attack the integrity of God's word. False teachers always attack the integrity of God's word. You hear things like this. The Bible is full of errors. The Bible contradicts itself. 
It was written by men, not inspired by God. You'll hear, you'll hear that over and over. Don't let such statements rock your world because they will try to take you to the Bible and show you that where there's contradictions, any biblical scholar can show you how the Word of God is written and why it is inspired and why it's inerrant. There's an example I want to take to you about an interesting conversation that took place between Charles Templeton and Dr. Billy Graham. It's excerpted from the book by Dr. Charles Templeton, Farewell to God, in which the integrity of God's Word was challenged. Now let me take you back for those of you who don't know these individuals. Charles Templeton and Billy Graham were well-known evangelists way back in time, and I would say in the 1950s and early 60s. And they, of course, we know about Billy Graham in terms of the ministry. It was actually said that Charles Templeton was actually a better speaker and orator uh, and evangelist than Billy Graham was. But unfortunately, he walked, he backpedaled in terms of his understanding of Scripture. And here's the, the crux of the decision that led to the separation in their friendship between Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. Here, here it goes. He said, in the, converse, in the course of our conversation, I said, this is Charles Templeton speaking, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, said Billy. There are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, Charles Stevenson said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? And most of them, yes, he said, but that's not the point. And here's what Billy Graham said. I believe the Bible, the Genesis account of creation, because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the Word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute. So I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. But Charles Templeton said, but Billy, I protested, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it, and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. Bill Graham says, I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I've decided that's the path for me. I believe what the Bible teaches. That's from this book called Farewell to God that Dr. Charles Templeton wrote as to why those two divided over the truth of God's Word. This sadly was a decisive breach in a friendship between two men as one left Christ, never to come back, and the other went on to win the world for Christ. And we know Billy Graham and his evangelistic ministries all around the world and preaching the gospel so people could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But what was the central issue? It was the truth of God's word. Do I believe the Bible to be true? And Billy Graham chose to believe what God said in his word and kept it as his lifeline. And that's why when you hear Dr. Billy Graham preach, you'll hear, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Lord says. And his authority was always the Word of God and believing it in totality. The first example of how God relates to us through His Word is in creation. 
God created the world by speaking it into existence. In Genesis 1-3, we read this, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The very existence of our world argues for the dependability of God's word. It is by God's word that we exist. God's means of creation was his word. He spoke it happened. His agent of creation was water. And the result of creation was the heavens and earth that God spoke into existence. The power of the word of God. The false teachers are willfully forgetting the elementary truths of God's word. In Genesis, the disobedience of Adam and Eve reaches a climax in the time of Noah. The water, which was the agent of God's created word, now becomes the agent of his judicial word. He uses the word, the water, to, they created the heavens and the earth with the water and the sea and the land, and now he uses the water to flood the earth. And by the means of those, the world that then existed was deluged or drowned with water and perished. God used that. The second illustration of the flood teaches us that God's creative word is utterly stable and immovable as is his judicial word. The false teachers were arguing about the stability of creative order. But the scripture shows there's nothing holding God back from intervening and judging the world at any time. God intervenes is always in his time. I think that's sometimes a challenge. Sometimes we wish that God would come back and judge the world sooner. But we're going to find out why God holds back. Uh, Peter also, as you know, the scripture here in verse 7, is careful in his selection of words in describing the world. See, God created the heavens and the earth, that in the Hebrew is called G, and the earth was remained fixed and stable. What was destroyed at the flood was the human world, or the Greek word would be cosmos. And what lies in the future is the fate of all creations, heaven and earth. The flood was really an advanced warning of a destruction that is to come. God still hates sin. God still judges and will judge the world, and he'll judge everyone. We read, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter is saying that the fact that we don't see God actively judging the world is not a sign of his weakness. God is absolutely in control, and his powerful world is being exercised, and that creation is reserved and being kept for final judgment. The present heavens and earth will be replaced by a new heaven and new earth. We see that in 3 verse 13. Notice that Peter changed the imagery from flood to fire in this passage. Fire is used in the scripture of God's agent of divine destruction. On the day of judgment, the standards that Jesus left us, we picked up again, and men and women will be measured against them. Those who live lives which fail to meet the standards that God said will be declared ungodly. The term ungodly was used by Peter to describe the people of Noah's day. And God saw that all. He saw the wickedness and he saw the ungodliness and they were judged. It was also used to describe Lot's fellow citizens in Sodom and Gomorrah, as we see in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, verses 5 and 6. They who are declared ungodly by God face destruction. It's hard to look at this without maybe a shudder. 
Peter's response is to live godly in the life, knowing that God is going to come and judge and that God is coming again should cause us to stir within our hearts a passion to live holy, godly, Christ-like, knowing He's coming, so that when He comes, we'll rejoice in His appearance, even though He's coming as a judge. As He will show the reason for God's patience, and sometimes wonder, why, why, is he, why is He holding up? Patience is the length of the days during which a change of heart is possible. What's God doing? He's holding back from coming because he wants to give everybody a chance to put their faith and trust in him so they can escape the judgment. It is God's right to judge. And the wonder of his love is that it offers salvation against his background of destruction. The fact that God would love this world, that he would love you and I, even in the, the evil and wickedness that we see rampant. And he said, if you just would confess your sin and come to Jesus, you can be spared from destruction and from judgment. The false teacher would realize the same word that guarantees a stable world also guarantees the judgment that they mock. Jesus Christ isn't coming. Don't worry about it. Yeah. What's your conclusion? Peter's point is this. If we keep these precious promises at the forefront of our mind and truly believe in them, the Spirit will sanctify us in the truth, God's Word, the precious promise of God's return and consummation of all events in Christ, they will keep us on the right track. If you know He's coming, you're going to be living in a different way, in a different manner. See, what you truly believe determines how you behave. Creed will always impact conduct. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. What you believe affects how you live. And when he comes back, my friend, what a glorious day that will be. When our Jesus we shall see. So as we contemplate the promise of this future righteousness, we should be strongly motivated and inspired to live in peace and live spotless, blameless lives through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. No, we're not going to carry out these goals perfectly in our lives in terms of being holy, godly, spotless. But if our minds are stirred up by such truth, we will far, be far more likely to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, know that He's coming. And when I know that He's coming, it's motivational to me in my own life to realize I need to live my life for the values that are going to be eternal. So my challenge to you today is this. Jesus Christ is coming soon. Secondly, don't believe what people say about in calling into question what God's Word teaches. Put your faith and confidence in the Word of God. And as Dr. Billy Graham said, when I preach the Word of God and I believe what it says, God uses it to impact and change lives. There's power in the authority of the Word of God. So as we live our lives, my friend, let's live our lives believing God's Word and looking forward expectantly to His coming because, my friend, He is coming someday and when he comes, what a day that will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. I pray you might use it to bless our hearts and encourage us. Help us live holy, godly lives, Father, so that in doing so, we will look expectantly to your coming. Bless us, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, and have a great week.